Hey, Bitch Talkers, we are still at Sundance 2022, along with our friend John Wildman from Films Gone Wild. And we're bringing you a set of shorts, Hallelujah, Panola Project, and Fuck Em Right Back. These are particularly fun interviews, so we're not even going to waste your time. Let's get to it. Enjoy. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Here we are at Sundance Virtual Land 2022. <laughs> um, my name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief for FilmsGoneWild.com. With me, which with the Bitch Talk podcast twosome, is Angela Tabora <laughs> and Aaron Lim with uh, producer Charlene listening in to uh, be amused and entertained by our champions. <laughs> um, and we're gonna talk about the short film, uh, Hallelujah. It is described as a tromedy, quite rightly so, because this sucker made us all cry like fucking babies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yep. you. Yeah. Thank you, so, yes. And, hey, and buddy, laugh. And a laugh. Best, you feel me? <laughs> Guys, okay. We've got director and screenwriter Victor Gabriel and producer Duran Jones. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It was a blessing. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to start this off. Uh, Victor, you're going to introduce our audience to the film. They have not seen it as yet. Uh, tell us what Hallelujah is about. Well, Hallelujah is about uh, two brothers in Compton, California, who are sort of, through in an inexplicable event, are sort of stuck with the guardianship of their nephew, um, who's like a weirdo, weirdo black kid, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and their niece. And they basically just have to decide whether or not they're gonna step to the plate and be caretakers, you know? But they sort of don't wanna do it because, you know, they think they're young men, but, and they can just do whatever the fuck they want to do. But, so it's just, it's just tracing their art. Yeah. I, I want to start with uh, how you describe the film as a tromedy. Uh, yeah. Our friend John just talked about it, but there's kind of a deep dive. So if you don't mind describing that to our to our listeners, because I thought it was a perfect description of the yeah. film. No problem. Um, I just, well, to be honest with you, if you say dramedy, it just feels like it's about some white people. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to keep all the way real. I was keep all the way real. <laughs> Shout out to all the Trump, shout out to all the dramedies that I love, by the way, by the way, <laughs> shout out to all those dramas which I do love. But um, for me, it's just, it's trying to think about all the dark, traumatic things that I've like seen in my life and been through. And honestly, the darker they've been, the more I laughed about it. Like, I, to be really, really honest, I mean, I don't want to just, it's probably too crash and too crazy trigger warnings for everybody, but just like, even the violence, abuse, and things I've seen, I have laughed extremely hard about it afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Like, I tell I tell Duran, like, I've got I've gotten a gun pulled on me. <laughs> me and my friends were like, oh shit, <laughs> oh shit, I'm about to die. And then later on, we end up laughing about it. Like, Bro, you remember that one time? We almost died. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's and it's like funny and and I always tell the story about like me and my little brother, me and my little brother would like 
be we would be in the kitchen when we was like little kids we'd be in the kitchen we would hop on top of our kitchen table and we would have like masks on and we would have like these bleach spray bottles right we would turn the lights on turn the lights off and then wait for a little bit put the lights back on a bunch of roaches are on the ground and we jump down and start killing them <laughs> like it was like <laughs> stop the alien invaders from coming you know what i'm saying and it's just like and it's just like when i'm older all I think about is like, oh, the lower socioeconomic context and how hard it is and the oppression of poor people. But I'm a kid. All I think about is that, oh, this is fun. Let's kill the roaches. They're trying to they're trying to break into our house. You know what I'm saying? I didn't think about how poor I was. And that's sort of like innocent, funny, dark thing that I think we all have, like, I think is dope. And I want to I want to like find those places. You know what I'm saying? I remember one of my bros. He, we had a hard conversation about like abuse he had experienced, like, like abuse he experienced growing up. But when he told me about it, he told, he like told it in such a weird way. He was like, Vic, and I was, this is what happened to me. And then how he said it, I remember I just started laughing. And he was like, why are you laughing? I got abused. <laughs> this is not funny, Vic. And then we had to start dying. And then later on, we started crying. And it's just like that weird thing of like where we laugh at funerals. You know what I'm saying? Like where mm -hmm. people laugh at funerals. Mm -hmm. That weird space where I feel more connected to y'all and to humanity in a weird way across races, across genders. When there's something that, oh, that was fucked up. And we laugh about it. I just feel, I feel more connected to you sometimes. That just being fully dramatic. And so I'm just trying to combine those elements to the best of my ability in this short film and i'm not saying i fully like I fully fully executed it yet but this is like the start it's like the start mm. yeah. no i i completely think you executed it beautifully mm -hmm. i think you captured grief in such a perfect way and it's so hard to do to find all those balances of laughter and sadness and confusion in yeah. in the mundane everyday life but yeah. you know when you write something down and then you and then you go to shoot it. It doesn't always translate. So was there any changes, anything you had to pull out? Because like, no, that's too dark. or No, that's too funny in this moment. What, uh, you know, uh, between what you put on paper and what we see on screen. For sure. Uh, well, mostly we took a lot. Of, I'm gonna say we took a lot of dialogue out, but we did have to take out some dialogue because really. And I think we're all artists here like dialogue is a is an interesting beast particularly when you're trying to do that sort of like sort of banter, comedic, like back and forth, sort of like, you know, like obviously Quentin Tarantino and Aaron Sorkin can do this very well. Mm. I didn't have time to rehearse with my actors. So I would have liked like two days of just like rehearsing and going through the dialogue and getting the rhythm and the music of it. We couldn't do that. So we had to figure out the day. So I just had to like make something shorter here and just sort of like let them play by themselves and find what naturally is happening. So we took out dialogue, took out a good amount, a good amount of dialogue, I think, took out some jokes, um, try to make things a bit more simple. And I also let like, cause one of the guys, is a, one of the uncles is a comedian. So I sort of like did a little, hey bro, do what you want to do. And he kind of did his thing. And then the other guy just sort of followed him. I was like, sounds beautiful, let's rock. So. <laughs> So, and you got to let people who are talented, like, do their thing. You know what I'm saying? You got to let them sort of, particularly, like, more co comic actors or comedic actors or comedians, I sort of, like, letting them figure out what they want to do and just staying within the concept. So, yeah. 
right, Duran, we want to get some producer love in here. Um, you know, and, and, and oftentimes, you know, especially on shorts, you know, when, when, when you're producing, you know, a short, you have to be, you know, full of ingenuity. And of course, you are obviously approving that because you're recording from a Starbucks right now. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so you had to figure shit out really quickly here on the fly. Um, but talk about, um, in, in particular for this project, um, some things you, some rabbits you had to pull out of your hat um, to be able to make the shooting day. Um, and then I'd love for you also to follow up, um, you know, and talk about the editing process and, uh, and being over Victor's shoulder to make sure that the right jokes were pulled out. So you made your 14 minute runtime. So talk about those two things. I, I think honestly, if, if I'm being honest about the runtime, that was more Vic than it was me. Um, he was like, how can we make this shorter? And I'm like, nah, bro, don't cut that out. It's beautiful. Um, so I think... <laughs> Duran wanted to do a feature. I was like, bro, we got to cut this short. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I told Duran, what are you talking about, bro? I'm playing that movie. <laughs> bro, I'm trying to get this in 13 minutes. The fuck? <laughs> I was like, no, bro. We're going to be good. 20-minute movie. We'll get the Oscars. I was like, no. Like, let's, let's get this shit down. Anyway. I think I'm in a I'm in a weird space though. Like both Vic and I are, are both artists. Like we come from a hip hop background. We were both rappers previously. Um, before I did uh, anything at AFI or anything with film, it was all about the creativity. And and for me as a producer, I've always just wanted to foster that in people that I believe in. And and the moment he sent me his feature script, I'm like he was asking me for notes, and I'm like, bro, you don't need no notes. Like, how are we going to make this? Like, and that's what I feel like my role is. It's like, what do you need and, and how do we execute it? And, and I can stay amenable in certain ways when, you know, problems or circumstances arise. But all in all, it's like, how do we make a great film? Um, even going back to what you were saying about the changes in the script or in the dialogue, uh, a, a part of it very early on that we discussed was how do we balance the darkness and the humor? And even, even as far as, getting the note to make it a garden hose that he's using instead of an actual rope, you know? And then we had that back and forth and just those creative conversations are where I feel like um, I'm at home. Um, and then the execution part is just the skill set that I've adapted being an independent artist for so long. Like all I've ever had to work with is the money in my own pocket. You know, when we came to AFI, um, they gave us like $4,700 to do our first shorts. And I'm like, 4,700, like I can do I can do this, we can have a car crash over here. I'm like, I can figure this out. Like, cause I mean, we both come from backgrounds where it's like, we haven't had the resources. So all we really need is the opportunity and the experience to show what it is that we can do. And, um, you know, I'm just happy to support him in doing it. Yeah, I um, I was excited when I saw that, uh, Victor, you're an MFT, marriage and family yeah. therapist. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me when I watched this film, well, especially after, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Can you talk about the marriage of that and, and being a creative? Because we on Bitch Talk, we've had both on. We always have directors on and we've had therapists on, but we've never had the combined. That's crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's super crazy, yeah. Uh, I am a marriage and family therapist currently. Um, one, I facilitate a black male trauma group like, um, like once a month. Um, I did a lot of, I specialize in trauma, so I uh, did a lot of work with survivors of trauma. Um, and come to Watson South Central, did a lot of work with girls on the street, um, sexual assault survivors, CSEC, I don't know if you know what CSEC is, um, which is commercially se sexually exploited children. So it's like 14, 15 year old girls on the street, basically prostitution, essentially. 
um, for, forgive the crassness of that. Uh, <clears throat> so I did a lot of work with, kid, with, with, with families and kids dealing with, dealing with trauma. I experienced obviously my own trauma and it's always been something that I wanted to do in terms of helping out um, the people who need it the most, right? You know, and so for a long time I did like very, did like a private practice that was just like $5, $10, $20, just come see a therapist, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And, and don't pay no money, but <laughs> don't pay no money. But it was what I feel like I had to do for like the people who I knew needed it, which is, you know, people like me, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I think in terms of the marriage, it's such an easy, that's actually, when I came to AFI, I didn't have any Hollywood experience at all, period, like period. I wrote like a short script. And the people who were there were a lot of people who had been in Hollywood before, or they knew someone in Hollywood, or they had done films and stuff before, they knew somebody in their family, or blah, blah, blah. I didn't. I didn't have none of that. And, and I always thought, oh, this is going to be a problem. In hindsight, being a therapist was like, like a big class for me in, in terms of storytelling. It mm. became a big, mm -hmm. because what I know now, and I said this quote before by Maya Angelou, that my Angelou says, you know, people don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that's so applicable to how I've been in therapy. In therapy, the kids and the people always, I don't know if they remember all the interventions. I hit them with like some CBT or some DBT or like dealing with their, you know, their, their bipolarness or their borderline personality disorders or et cetera, or complex trauma, complex PTSD. And I give them all these interventions and we, and we talk and I figure this out. They remember that Vic was like my my dad or Vic was like my big brother. You know what I'm saying? Or Vic, I knew I know Vic loves me. That's what they remember, that I, they felt, felt safe with me when we, when we spoke. And I think the same way about film is that it's this visceral thing. I, I might not know all the craft and the technology, but I do know like what it means to feel something, to connect with someone's suffering and someone's joy and someone's pain and someone's like, someone's humor, you know what I'm saying? And, and how we laugh at just the weird shit, you know what I'm saying? And like, <laughs> and I just, and I just know that therapy, being a therapist helped with that part, that mm -hmm. visceral, that's the thing that sometimes people don't understand being a therapist. It's not just the, the knowledge and the psychology because a lot of people can just go get, can get, you can go read a couple of books for that. The thing that's specific about being a therapist is different than just, I know a bunch of shit on Instagram psychology, is that the <laughs> idea of being in a room with somebody and they're saying to me, I need help. Like, mm -hmm. like what am I going to do? Vic, I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to be okay? That's a hard thing for someone to ask me, Vic, am I going to be okay? And I got to answer them, <laughs> maybe. Being in a room with somebody, and that's actually very similar to what it means to like direct and to write. It's like, I'm attempting to figure out how to connect to this person, how to connect to this character, how to connect to the story, and then make you feel it on a visceral level, not necessarily intellectual level, you know what I'm saying? Because um, sometimes in therapy, I can intellectualize things all I want. I can bring out the Carl Union ideas, humanistic psychology, et cetera. But what works most is that intangible feeling of, oh, I feel safe with this person right now. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then all the interventions work. And I think the same thing with film. Like, I felt something at the end of watching Hallelujah. I felt deeply. I felt something very profound. I don't really know. I don't know what it means to be poor. <laughs> I don't know what it means to, like, live in a, <clears throat> a context of poverty and violence and oppression. But I do know I felt grief 
and I felt pain and I felt suffering. And I think if I can make people connect to that, then I think, you know, job well done on my part. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I love I love how you just described the molding of those two worlds. It's just like when people say, would you rather know a little bit about a lot of things or be an expert at one thing? It's like, that's not how the mind works. Like if you, right. you know, you can take what you learned here and apply it to this part of your life. So, so yeah. I love how you connected those two things. Um, but, but there's a couple different references in this, in this short that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Uh, one of them is hallelujah quotes uh, this book, the black boy. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to know the story behind that. And also there's a conversation about cornflakes cornflakes it seems very personal so so what's the story behind these two references i have to know uh, well richard Wright. first of all richard Wright is like black boy is a seminal book for me i read it when i was very young actually probably younger than him when i was like about like 10 and 13 i read everything i was reading everything all the time i was like i was so nerdy that i would like i would have a textbook in class, like the science textbook, but underneath the textbook, I had the book I was reading. So it looked like I was looking at the biology book. Really, I was reading some some novel, which is always weird. The teacher's like, you're not paying attention. <laughs> and they stop because I should, she, they should get mad at me for not paying attention, but how mad can you get a kid for reading a book in class? <laughs> like, you know, I'm not like doing anything crazy. So it was a seminal book for me just in terms of what I read and the, and the violence and, and everything was beautiful. What's more important is that I think on a just like the continent there is subtext in terms of like some of the racial or intellectual things, oppressive things that Richard Wright has brought up or he observed about the world in terms of being a black man, black boy. But more important on a universal level, it was Holly's dad's favorite book. And that, and that to me is what's most significant. He's quoting it. Yeah, there's things in there which are great, but it's this is my dad's favorite book, and that's why I'm quoting it right now. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 there's a memory I'm, I'm, I have attached. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. But this was the book that his, that his dad liked. Um, with well, my cornflakes, me and my um, me and my homeboys always. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, my homeboys named Spicer. Me and him argue about cereal all the time. That's why. <laughs> that's why. I promise you, we have like it, it happened on set, by the way. <laughs> it happened on set. I promise. Grant is me, verifying. <laughs> me and him was like top five cereals, and he'll be like cinnamon toast crunch, frosted flakes. And then we had this big argument about raisin raisin bran. I like raisin bran is is trash. And he's like, no, but the raisin bran crunch is fire. I'm like, okay, you know what I'm saying? And then he'll say some bullshit like Fruity Loops is good. Like get the fuck out of here. No, agree. Fruity Loops. That shit is trash. So, 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 so we had this argument, real life, our argument about the best cereal. And then it just struck to me as like this interesting, I feel like I'm always having these weird, not drag down fights with my friends about the most mundane, stupid <laughs> conversations of all time. Like the best Disney movies, cartoon movies, bro. Like big arguments, big arguments. Like, no, bro, Beauty and the Beast is the greatest. And then this, bro, oh, bro. Like, so it was just what I feel like happens in like intimate relationship, which is like weird conversation that's like inside jokes. Everyone else is like, why would you argue about that? But it's like a thing that happens in family. Like we argue about weird shit, you know what I'm saying? And I just felt like that was what I wanted, what I wanted to put in there, you know what I'm saying? So. Well, listen, uh, it's, again, the film is Hallelujah, uh, a short tromedy 
uh, screening at Sundance 2022. Uh, we've been talking to the latest dynamic duo to come out of the grassy hill up at AFI, uh, Victor Gabriel, the director screenwriter of the film, producer Duran Jones. Uh, the film legit makes you laugh, makes you cry, extols the truths of the superfood known as cornflakes. Uh, congratulations, guys. Uh, 100%, bro. Hey, you put that sugar and milk and you're good to go. You just might have to mix up the, you got to stir it a lot because with cornflakes, when you put the sugar in, the shit don't actually mix all the way. You got to no. wait a little bit and then it's fire. Yes. If, you're, if you're not careful, the sugar's going to be at the bottom and you fuck that. So, <laughs> mix, a good mix, you're going to be all right. Ah, <laughs> uh, congrats, guys. Really wonderful. <laughs> Honestly, um, you know, I do a lot of film festivals around the country. I'm really hoping I get you to at one of my other film festivals or, or a few of my other film festivals. So I hope you guys, you know, after this, uh, have a kick-ass uh, regional tour. And uh, and like I said, it'd, it'd be awesome to have you other places in the country. Congrats, man. I love this film. Thank you all so much, man. It's gratifying for me. I only have gratitude for this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I... I don't get to, I, I wasn't doing this a year ago. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like to be able to talk about this shit, like it, it, it's like, it's big time for me, man. I, I feel like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not that, maybe I'm gonna make some of myself or something. You know what I'm saying? So you already have. You, Victor, yeah, so, don't make me cry again. Yeah, I know. Let's go. <laughs> we gotta go. We just, <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> nah, man. Nah, man. It's real shit. It's real shit from the bottom of my heart. I get to tell, like, my family and friends who, like, invested so much in me that, like, y'all, I'm about to go on an interview. Like, really? They're excited. And I'm more excited for them because they put so much into me. I hope they get, they get an investment back from the love they showed me. And so thank you for giving me that and honoring me. So thank you. Well, listen, you know, I tell filmmakers all the time, um, you know, that, you know, th this stuff is is never a guarantee that that, you know, that you get into a Sundance, that you get into a I festival know. like this. And, and 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 I know that, you know, all kinds of shit runs through your guys head because you're like going, did we get our virtual tickets? Did we get this? Did this happen? <laughs> Whatever. And it's like, make sure you soak it up. Make sure you enjoy it. And, you know, even though it's virtual and not in person, there's still a shit ton that, you know, that, that, that comes your way because of this. And don't get so tied up in the business and, and the angst and responsibilities that you don't realize, fuck, I'm in Sundance. Um, so enjoy, you guys. Don, you want to be my white dad? I don't got no dad. <laughs> I mean, I, I, need, I, need, I need the energy, bro. I need the energy. You know what I'm saying? I can sign you up. I'm, I'm taking a list of white dads. Who say great? Who great shit? I'd be, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be very happy to be your wife, Dad. <laughs> you can join the list of you seen Coach Taylor. I got a list of Coach Taylor. Oh, Coach Friday Taylor. Well, duh. Coach yeah. Taylor from Friday Night Lights. What yeah. about us? Can we be Stewart. your Asian cousins? Are we the cousins? Asian cousins? You need an yeah, Asian cousin? Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. There's let's always a it. there's always a Filipino cousin. Always. We are at Sundance Virtually 2022. Uh, my name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of filmsgonewild.com. With me are my interview teammates from Bitch Talk Podcast. We've got Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. And on this segment, we are gonna talk about a very cool documentary short film, The Panola Project. We have 
the directing and screenwriting producing team of Rachel DeCruz, Jeremy S. Levine. I'm saying the S because if you put your initial in there, it's obviously important. We need to make sure it's Jeremy S. Levine. Um, Way better, yeah. And, um, and we're going to start off because we got lots to talk about, but we're going to start off by having one of you, I hope you did uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors beforehand, to describe the movie to our audience. They have not seen it as yet. So Rachel, Jeremy, which one is going to talk about the movie? Um, hi, everyone. We're so excited and happy to be here with you today. So uh, like was named, The Panola Project is a short documentary film following the efforts of Dorothy Oliver. She's a retired county administrator living in Panola, Alabama, which is a really small rural community. And the film really follows her as she launches a vaccination campaign to keep her rural black community safe from COVID. We watch her go door to door, talk with her neighbors about the importance of getting the vaccine. We watch her organize with the county um, commissioner, Drusilla Jackson, to get a pop-up site to Panola so that folks are able um, to get vaccinated within their local community and not have to travel nearly 40 miles to the closest hospital. Dorothy is a force to be reckoned with, and we hope that everybody who watches the film falls in love with her as much as we did while we made it. Mm, yes, thank you. That was beautiful, and that, that's exactly what I was going to say, and I know I'm not alone in this sentiment. The first second, you don't even see her, you hear Dorothy, you immediately love this woman, and uh, throughout the progression of the film, what really struck me about her, and I think we can all learn from her, is how she took people's apprehension with the shot with such understanding and warmth and with an open heart. And um, I'm curious to know, I, I really appreciate how this is not political. This is not a political film, although the issues are, you know, there are roots that we can talk about aside from this. But um, I'm curious to know, were there some conversations that she had that were political that you kind of kept out of it because you didn't want to mess with just the pureness of her story? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and, oh my God, did I learn so much from, from Miss Dorothy, right? I, I just feel like our go-to nowadays is to like get on Twitter and yell at people, right? And <laughs> it turns out that that doesn't really do a lot, um, go figure, right? That, that then everyone's just angry at each other. Uh, and, and then instead Dorothy shows up and she, I mean, first of all, she has these like deep rooted relationships with people that certainly helps, but she, she also just shows up and it's clear from the moment she does that, that she's showing up because she cares about that person, right? That's such a different way of approaching things. She shows up and she answers people's questions. If she doesn't know the answer, she goes and tries to find out somebody who does. She doesn't talk down to anybody. She doesn't shame anybody. She doesn't yell and like grab people by the neck and strangle them until they relent, right? Like that, that doesn't work. Um, but, you know, I, she's relentless, right? I mean, she doesn't stop, but she clearly does it from a, a place of love and, and to see the ways in which she's actually able to get people uh, to, to change dramatically from where they started a conversation. I mean, it, it, it was really phenomenal. And, and, you know, there were, we spent a long time kind of going door to door with her as she was talking to people, getting them to sign up for this pop-up vaccine clinic she was bringing to town. And there were really just a handful that, that had maybe gone down the full rabbit hole into conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, it was surprising to us to, 
you know, it was something I think we knew, but but just being there and, and seeing it and and there's just such this narrative in in a lot of the media that like everyone who's not getting the vaccine is not getting the vaccine because they are crazy conspiracy theorists and like, yes, this is a huge issue and misinformation is a huge issue, but but in a place like Panola, at least, way more of the issue is just that that folks didn't have access to get the vaccine. If if the hospital's 40 miles away and you don't have a car and you know you don't have time off from work, right? That's a challenge. So uh, you know, she she found ways to to bring the clinic to town so that that people wouldn't have to travel. That was incredible. You know, in, in those instances when there were uh, folks who were kind of going down the, um, you know, it's the government controlling me and putting microchips in me. I mean, she would she would very specifically be like, come on, let's not like, let's not do this whole political dance. Like, we're just trying to keep you safe, right? Like, this is a vaccine that is going to help keep you safe. And if you've got questions, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to find out those answers for you. So, um, so yeah, she like, she took it seriously, but also was kind of trying to pivot it back into like, what we're here for is to keep each other safe. I have a lot of other questions, but I think we didn't hit the nail on the head yet about how did you find Dorothy? <laughs> <laughs> So we, uh, Jeremy and I were living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama at the time that we made this film. And we were in a dark place, right? It was like we were, the the vaccine was coming out, um, but we weren't seeing people in the state of Alabama getting vaccinated in the at the levels that you would want to, right? In order to feel safe. And so we were really looking for some hope. We were looking for a story that we thought could like both inspire us personally from just like a selfish standpoint, and then also something that could help um, inspire people more broadly. And we actually read about Dorothy in a New York Times article. We were like, wow, this sounds like really interesting, fascinating work. We tried to call up the general store. And of course, like the number online doesn't work. And we're like, let's just hop in the car and like drive to Panola. It's a little bit over an hour from Tuscaloosa. And we got there and, um, you know, we had been in, you know, like isolating. So this was one of the first conversations we'd had with somebody in a very long time. And we spent like almost three hours with her. I feel like we walked in the door of her general store and she just immediately embraced us, treated us like family, was just so curious in what we were doing, was so willing um, to share what was going on in Panola and how her work was going and what she was hoping for. It was just a really beautiful interaction. And I think we knew pretty immediately uh, just how special she was and how important it was to be able to tell a story that um, that really lifts up uh, the work that Black women are doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the work that Dorothy's doing, and also just the work that Black women are doing across our country each and every day to protect their communities. Take a moment um, to, to let give you two an opportunity to do something that you don't always get to do publicly. Um, and that is because, you know, you, you're working as a, as a directing team, there's no one size fits all um, in terms of the responsibilities or the strengths that one uh, person has versus the other. So I would love for both of you to talk about, and, and you know, and it can be just even something as an inspirational thing, or it can even be a technical uh, aspect. But one thing that you're going, thank God, I've got, I'm teaming up with freaking Rachel here, or thank God, Jeremy's <laughs> on the case with me because he's better at this than I am, or, th- or, or you know, or she doesn't drop balls like I do. Like wh- whatever it is, I would love for both of you to talk to to to, to talk about the other. And, and something that, that was just huge in being able to team up with them. 
And we should say, you know, Jeremy and I are partners in life as well as creative partners. So um, it just has another layer of complexity to kind of collaborating with each other. But um, I've never made a film before. So this was kind of my first entry into filmmaking. I don't have the technical skills of, you know, being able to know how to use the camera, being able to edit. And so, you know, I wasn't sure what that kind of power imbalance would feel like when we were working together on this project. And Jeremy was so patient, so thoughtful. He really like genuinely like taught me so much as we were going in this way that it was just very generous. Um, and I really appreciated it. So thank you, Jeremy. You know, I feel like everyone's always called me pushy until this film, for some reason I like <laughs> found patience or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I also want to say that, you know, I've been making films for 15 years or something. And so I'm, I'm kind of kind of like pissed off that Rachel's just like, oh, let's just like try to make a film. And then it's like <laughs> at Sundance. This is the first time I've been at Sundance. You know? She was the missing piece, um, maybe. I, maybe that's maybe that's it. Uh, no, I mean I'm I'm always obviously thrilled and and yeah, Rachel's like, you know, her her perspective, her kind of background in racial justice has like been so so crucial in making sure we approach this in a in a responsible and a respectful way. She's wildly organized. She loves these like super long emails that scare the hell out of me. But like she makes sure everything gets done and like balls don't get dropped. That I would so easily drop, um, you know, I, uh, even like right now, everything's crazy at Sundance. There's a million emails and I'm just like running around in circles, banging my head on walls. And Rachel's just like, like banging it out and making things happen and keeping everything on track. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, it, it clearly could have, you know, it was like, I don't know what this is going to, how this will go to, to kind of have a, a life and creative partner and, those could maybe cause some problems, but but I think we we just worked really well together. We were almost always on the same page. We would try different things out. And I, I think there might have been something too that it didn't feel like there was a lot of pressure on us with this project because we didn't have really <laughs> we didn't know what was gonna happen with this film. We didn't we didn't even really have like big goals. We were just like we want to we want to make this film because we want to make this film. Um, and, and, you know, we were thrilled when the New Yorker came on later, but, but for a lot of the process, we were just the two of us doing this thing with Dorothy and, um, and able to kind of keep the, the joy of creation uh, alive in the process. That's beautiful because, you know, this pandemic has been a make or break for couples. So it's nice to know that it's brought you two together and, and now you have new strengths to share with each other. That's beautiful. Um, and on the topic of beautiful, I saw that Dorothy received the uh, Humankind Award, which is great. There's, you know, a thank you letter from Dr. Fauci in your press notes. And, you know, awards are good and fine. But I, I want to know, did that come with something, with funding, with supplies? Was there, you know, a promise to improve infrastructure in rural communities, specifically Black communities? You know, was there any addition to this award? And are they getting the help they need now without as much work on their end? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that question. Um, there was a small financial um, component to the award, but I will say, you know, we're really interested in figuring out how can we use this, leverage this film to do exactly what you're naming, right? To really ensure 
that resources are allocated to the communities that need them most, right? When we think about Biden's infrastructure bill and the opportunity there to really think that could go really great or it could go really wrong. And unless we're really explicit about the role that race is playing and the role that race has played in kind of constructing the outcomes that we see in our communities, we're not actually going to get the resources to the right place. So I think there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, we also, you know, I think what Dorothy showed throughout the film is just, this is a really successful model to invest in as well, right? Like how do we actually get resources into communities but into community leaders' hands who actually have relationships with those communities who know what those folks need and can leverage those relationships to move change in a different kind of way. And so we're actually in the process of, we've had some conversations with Oxfam about partnering with them on an impact campaign that we're really excited about. So are hoping to be able to do some kind of more targeted advocacy pushes as we move forward and really capitalize on our Sundance moment to help share Dorothy's story more broadly and to bring change where it's needed. I love that. Um, I was thinking when I was watching the film, like, man, if there is a Dorothy for every like POC uh, community in every city, village, town in, in America and the world, I think a lot more people would be vaccinated. Um, but I do want to talk about closing credits. And I want to talk about uh, Jermaine Mainframe Fletcher, because you, you have him up in lights twice throughout the film. And then um, Lightning. <laughs> Loved it. Can you talk about all of that? Yeah, uh, I would say I think our time with with lightning dancing at the end was probably the highlight of our our time in Alabama. Mm-hmm. It, like <laughs> while just, we were filming, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like having a visceral smiling. reaction just remembering it. Yeah, it was such a beautiful <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, in case you haven't watched the film yet, right? This is uh, this old man who mm-hmm. uh, is is like such a force. He's been in the community for such a long time. Uh, and, and, you know, Dorothy's talking to him about how, like, we need to get vaccinated so you can get back to dancing and having your party. And so, so we're like, oh, we need to, we need to film that. Um, <laughs> and we, we showed up, it was one of the last things we filmed, I believe. And, and I, was it his, uh, some of his family members were there, like, setting up a boombox. And he's like, I want to play this song. Uh, which is not the song we actually, you know, hear that Jermaine, uh, our, our composer, did such a great job with. But but he had a specific song in mind that had such a long intro. And so we're, we're like, we hit record. We're also filming in slow motion, which like burns cards quickly. And he's like not doing anything for so, so, so long. And he's like kind of like twiddling his thumbs a little bit and like, a tiny like shimmy back and forth every once in a while. And we're like, is, is this, is this the dancing? <laughs> and then like, and then it like broke. And all of a sudden he's just, he, you know, he comes alive and he's like incredible. Uh, and, and so, yeah, once, once it kicked in the gear, it was just like such a delight to, <laughs> to be part of. Um, and then we, we, managed to convince Dorothy against much protest to, to go and join in. Mm. Um, oh, and, and Jermaine, right? Uh, Jermaine yeah. and Fletcher's our composer. He is, he was incredible. I mean, we're so, so thrilled with uh, the music in the film. And, you know, we had been working 
with uh, a temp score. Uh, we were we were super into uh, Marvin Gaye's Troubled Man soundtrack, mm-hmm. and so that was a lot of our soundtrack as as temp as placeholder. Uh, and, and you know, I think you know, there's there's only one Marvin Gaye, but like Jermaine <laughs> took that and and you know built upon it and was able to emulate that feel at times and then was able to bring in his own style and flair in, in such a, a fun and beautiful way so we're yeah we're really thrilled with um the sound of the film as well well i mean i'm sure uh, getting the rights to trouble man was only gonna be nine times your budget so. <laughs> i mean really you two um but <laughs> again we've been talking about the panola project which is a documentary short screening at sundance and, uh, and we've been having fun talking to the directing, screenwriting, production team, uh, Rachel DeCruz and Jeremy S. Levine. This is just, it's just a wonderful film and uh, it's been great talking to you two about it. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. This thrill. was awesome. Dance 2022 virtual recipe style. Uh, my <laughs> name is John Wildman. I am the editor in chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. With me is Angela Deborah and Aaron Lim from the Bitch Talk podcast out of San Francisco. And on this one, this is a good one to finish on. Welcome <laughs> right back. All right. Yes. This is a short film. Uh, and we have with us the director, Harris Doran. We've got producer, Doris Casta. And we've got from the cast, Daniel DDM. Welcome to the show. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, We're going to start this off by uh, Harris. Introduce our audience. They have not seen the film. They have not seen the short film yet. Tell them what it's about. Sure. Fucking Right Back is a comedy short film that's about a uh, aspiring rapper uh, who has a day job and his day job boss is out to get him and he's to try to keep his job after he accidentally eats an edible. Right. Relatable. (laughs) (laughs) Felt familiar. Um, I saw this title and I just wrote it down right away. I didn't even read what what the synopsis was. I'm like, yep, we're doing that. Um, First of all, now I'm obsessed with DDM. DDM, can you tell, tell our audience and us who you are, please? Okay, so um, I am DDM. I am from Baltimore, Maryland. I am a rapper now slash actor um, slash creative slash everything. Um, I have been writing songs for a number of years. I've had songs featured on Netflix, um, been on BET, had songs featured on BET. So, you know, I'm here, I'm queer, and yes. (laughs) Bravo. (laughs) well I love that yeah this story is you in essence and and I'd love to hear how uh Harris you you got associated with DDM and how his music really inspired the flow of the film sure um so um so Doris um who is the executive producer and producer of the film um she and Manny um knew each other she Manny had has um, this amazing YouTube channel, Secretary of Shade, um, with like a really good following and everyone should follow it. Um, and so 
Doris fell in love with him and got in touch with him and um, uh, and she wanted to do something with him. And so um, she, uh, one of the things that she thought of doing was doing a film. And so I ended up coming up with a uh, feature idea and we ended up going down and um, hanging out with, with DDM and, and then um, decided to do a short film first. And um, the, uh, the music actually, so the script was written and then I was getting to know DDM and I was like, oh my God, like his music is so amazing. I fell in love with it. And so I was like, uh, is there any chance that I could use this in the movie? Cause it's so good. And so, um, so I ended up uh, using a lot of like his music throughout a lot of the movie. Um, so you get to hear a lot of it and it's amazing. Yeah. No, I'm a big uh, production design freak. And, and so when I see a movie like this, I just get all giddy because we've got candy colors all over the place. We've got in, in, in your face, a style and design, which of course works mm -hmm. into the, you know, to, you know, to, to the, the, the story of the film and, and DDM's personality and, and everything you've got. But let's talk about that. Uh, and I would love sure. for, you know, for, 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 for both uh, Harris and both you and Doris to talk about, uh, you know, pulling off that specific production design. Sure. Um, so the, um, the production design, you know, I had the, the idea of it being, you know, super bright. You know, and there are, so Manny actually, his, his outfits, he designed, like he literally, like the fabulous ones, he literally created those. Um, and he was also in charge of doing uh, Kara's wardrobe. And then um, that pink wall is the actual wall in his house. Um, and then for the rest, you know, I, I wanted it like to be heavy specifically in like a bright pink. And so made sure to buy a lot of like colors and, use a lot of the stuff that, that Manny owns and, you know, arranged it in a, uh, a way, but um, was really consistent about it having like this bright poppy look throughout the whole film. Yeah, I mean, it was a perfect match of uh, Manny's style, Manny's DDM, obviously. His videos, his style, his personal fashion, et cetera. And Harris could see that and envision the film in that spectrum. And it, it really came together because we were shooting with Manny, uh, with things styled by Manny, designed by Manny and in Manny's house. So it's, it sort of, it, and it's, it matches the complete joyful comedy that we were trying to get. And for DDM, Manny, now you're an actor. How, how was it being on that side of the camera? Cause I mean, it looked effortless, but were there days where you're like, I don't know. Well, Jesus. Okay. So let me give you the tea, girl. So first <laughs> off, we shot this in three days, three 12-hour days. Okay. So that is the feat in itself, right? And for me, I had done music videos before, of course. I directed my own videos, styled them, the whole shit, scouted the location, the whole shit out, right? So, but it's a different story when you show up on set and your first day of shooting is, okay, we want you to argue with Kathy Curtin. We know that you just seen her on Stranger Things the night before, cracking up in the house, but now you need to argue with this lady. <laughs> and so for me, for me, um, that was the adjustment. Harris did help me a lot um, with easing some of the nerves that I had. Um, with the acting, but, um, and also to the great Carr Young, Carrie Young, 
um, did an excellent job on set working with me and just making me feel at home. And um, what I love about acting is that once you settle in, you got to live into these, you got to live in these characters, you got to live in these environments. So even though some may say, oh, well, you was paying yourself. No, not quite frankly. It's a different story when you have to feed off a different actor. So by day two, I was super in the pocket. And um, it's interesting now because I have like people reaching out for me to read for other stuff and studios and things like that. So those are things that I just did not anticipate. And now was given, oh, he's a thespian, you know? So it's a great honor. And I want to just say that uh, from the minute I, I saw uh, DDM come across my screen, it was my vision and I knew that he needed to act and he could act and, but he never had before. And that was why, you know, Harris had suggested we do the short first, partly so he could act, but you know, there we were on set the first day. And I had this moment where I was like, Oh my God, the thing I had absolutely zero doubts about is happening. And it's happening exactly at the level I knew it would. So that was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. He really just took to it exactly the way I envisioned. It was amazing. Well, we can't wait for the feature length. Uh, we're here mm-hmm. for it. <laughs> but, you know, over at Bitch Talk, we we encourage any opportunity to cuss freely. So uh, I love this title. <laughs> yes. And um, I would I would love to talk about the, just the significance of the title, because, yes, this is a comedy, but there also is a, still a deeper message within the short. Yeah, I mean, the the movie is, you know, deals with class, you know, and deals with um, the suppression of people from people in power against people who don't have power um and you know that's something that you know uh in terms of ddm and myself you know both being queer that the we have while not the same journey we have parallel journeys um and so something that's personal um and the title to me was like it just was clear to me that that was the title like i had i had doubts about whether it was like too much. And so that's what I ended up like figuring out, like, let me try this with, you know, like all these weird, crazy letters, like the, using the weird things to make it be like, this is a comedy. We always talked about the themes as what is it like to be someone in the cog of an institution that has power over you because of money and to be an aspiring artist um, in that setting. Um, and that just came through the whole time. It was very interesting um, to add to Doris and uh, Harris's point. It was very interesting to me because I literally worked for a utility company um, for many years. So it wasn't a far stretch. So a lot of the the tropes and things that happen really do happen. And I think what was so important about this film for me is that people see my Instagram, they see, you know, all these highlights of artists' life, not realizing that all that nice stuff, you know, I like the way it costs money. It costs money to be DDM. And um, sometimes you have, it, it do, like, you know, John, you laughing and I love it. It do, it costs money. You see these nails? You know how much it costs <laughs> to do these nails? Okay. So like you have to, um, I think it's important for kids, specifically kids and people that's coming up because we sell these kids a very glossy image of what this life can be. And it's like, no, 
these people have jobs. For everybody that's living in LA, a lot of them are working waitressing jobs at night so that they can support themselves and they auditioned on the day. So I think that that was very important to see and very important um, to see the class differences as well in the film. But that was, that was very, very important to me. Uh, Harris, I wanted uh, you to talk about something because you know, as long as I've known you, you've been a, a veritable magnet for film makers, you know, and, and, and you literally would be like, a, as long as I've known, like a, a, an actual matchmaker for filmmakers and film productions and, and stuff like that, you know, in, in, in New York City. And I'm kind of curious in the past couple of years, because, you know, I remember, you know, you would throw organiz you know, parties to get people together, just to put people in the same room. So those mm -hmm. connections would happen. And which is the way that, you know, films like this, independent films do happen and are yeah. able to exist. Um, I would love for you to talk about in the past couple of years, you know, um, how that has, how, you know, how your approach has had to change because you can't get a bunch of people in a room together um, and, and how your own personal network, you know, has, has kind of worked out. I mean, you know, you, you had, you know, an, a, an amazing, uh, you know, feature that that was uh, a huge festival hit, um, you know, so, so it's like, you know, you, you keep trugging along and you, and you keep adding stuff, but you haven't been able to do it the same way you were. I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. I mean, because of the pandemic that everything's yeah. on Zoom kind of a thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, in, you know, it's, what's been amazing is what been watching the community of how people have figured out, how, you know, like I've been on a bunch of, you know, Zooms where people are like, okay, for this hour, there's going to be like drinks and we're going to meet people. And, you know, actually like doing that, I ended up getting a job through Queens Theater during the pandemic doing like a whole movie that ended up premiering on PBS, like from one of those things. You know, in terms of this film, you know, we were shooting, you know, where DDM lives, which is Baltimore, right? So in terms of that, I basically was like, let me go to my Facebook and, and put in who is from Baltimore. And I ended up finding like uh, my friend, David Drake, who is an amazing playwright. And I was like, hey, do you know anyone who can like help produce in Baltimore? And he ended up connecting me with um, uh, one of the heads of the school there, Micah who, um, you know, ended up getting us uh, James, who ended up being one of the producers of the film, you know. Um, and so it was a bunch of sort of outreach in that way or finding, um, again, also through Facebook, through someone um, in order to do our budget. I found someone through there, you know. And then, um, you know, finding, um, you know, when I started, you know, um, we posted on, you know, for all the schools down there to try and get, because you know indie film like there's there's no budget for anything so to try and get people and so it's basically a network of people asking people um in a totally different city you know um and so you just got to make it work you know what i mean yeah. um, and people i think are excited to to help people and you know to see like okay the world died but someone's still making something and so i think people you know want to help you know well, I mean, I mean, you know, it, 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 it certainly is fantastic that you're able to pull it off on this one because it, it is just a fun fucking movie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I say that appropriately because, again, the title is Fuck Em Right Back, um, which is uh, debuted here at uh, Sundance. I, I hope that I have you guys at a bunch of my film festivals down the road. So, 
so we we can redo this thing and 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 uh, and and trot this thing out more. We've been talking with the director Harris Doran, producer Doris Kessup, and of course DDM star of the film, inspiration for the film, the living embodiment of the film. Um, again, <laughs> thank you all for being here and being on the show. Congratulations on the thanks film. for having us. Thank you so much. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. 